Aloha, Lofa listeners, and welcome back to My Fabulous Blind Life. I'm your host, Nicole, and today we're going to be talking about the medical malpractice lawsuit I was involved in. So upon my return to Washington from California, I did a lot of self-reflection like I did in the car on the way back to Washington. I realized however much normal I wanted or to feel like myself, I still just wasn't ready for it. Although it was a fabulous break for me to go down to California and spend those two months with Roxy, I still had a long way to go and was not ready to be on my own. I spent the next two weeks with my grandparents and had a wonderful visit and had them all to myself while the rest of my family was back east at a family reunion. Once my mother returned, though, it was of course back to the norm. We went back to physical therapy, which I think I was doing about three times a week. I saw my doctors as needed. I don't think I needed to see them as regularly by this time because we had kind of gotten all my medical issues under control. I still had frequent headaches, but I did have medication to manage that. I think it was about this time that I started to see a counselor to try and deal with the trauma, depression, anxiety, and all the other things I was going through. That, listeners, is a whole other story and issue on which we will explore in a different episode. When I first moved to Washington, my mother immediately flew into action in looking for a medical malpractice lawsuit. After what my doctor at UCFS had told her, she thought it was worth looking into. She called all my family members that either went to the hospital with me or saw me during that time and had everybody document what they had experienced. She got all the documentation together for an attorney, which luckily my aunt already knew a fabulous medical malpractice attorney that helped her friend. So my mom sent everything off to him in California. Although my mother was absolute full steam ahead with this medical malpractice lawsuit, I myself was rather hesitant about it. I kind of thought it may be a worst of waste of her time and mine and that it really wouldn't go anywhere. For some reason, I thought the way I was treated was normal. I thought that possibly all overweight people were treated that way because it was their own fault they were overweight. Like myself, I had tried so many different diets and whatnot and nothing ever worked. I was never successful. I figured that was my own fault and why wouldn't people treat me that way because I couldn't lose the weight anyway. I think maybe deep down inside I had normalized this behavior or this treatment of me. I thought it was okay maybe just because I was overweight that people uh, sometimes treated me that way. Also, it seemed every single time I went to my primary care physician, no matter 
what ailed me, headache, high blood pressure, um, anxiety, it didn't, it didn't matter. It always seemed to come back to my weight. I remember my doctor always saying to me at every single visit, Nicole, if we can just get some of this weight off, you wouldn't have so many health issues. You wouldn't have high blood pressure. You wouldn't be at risk for diabetes and other issues. I guess I kind of normalized that in my head that um, because I couldn't lose the weight, all the medical issues I was having was my fault. The attorney my mother had contacted and sent all the paperwork and information to got back to us actually rather fast. Um, I moved up to Washington in August of 1997 and I'm pretty sure before the end of that year we were already down in California for a meeting with him. The attorney had an office in Walnut Creek, California, which is kind of a nice or wealthier part of California, I guess. He was in a big building. I remember we had to ride an elevator up to get to his office. He was the only lawyer in practice. He wasn't part of a firm or a partner. It was his practice. The elevator opened onto his very spacious waiting room and his, I don't know, assistant office manager greeted us and offered us all something to drink and promptly brought everything to us on a tray. I thought to myself, wow, this is pretty fancy. It's kind of like in the movies. Um, I was thinking all these niceties are too good to be true. I was pretty sure they were just, I don't know, trying to dole down the hurt of maybe getting the rejection that my case was no good. The lawyer came out and I remember he introduced himself and asked us to come into his very spacious office, which just happened to be much larger than his waiting room. And it was one of those offices like you hear everybody asking for in the movies, you know, the corner office with the window. I was kind of shocked because it had a conference table in there. It was like its own little office suite. Mr. B, which is what I will call my attorney, shook my entire family's hands. I remember my mother, stepfather, grandparents, and maybe even my brother was with us. We all went into the office and he asked us all to please take a seat. I think when I sat down, I sat right next to Mr. B and from what I could tell, he was, I guess, a run of the mill, average mid forties man with dark hair and a mustache. Anyway, he turned to me and he said, Nicole, I have very carefully reviewed your case and I'm sitting there thinking to myself, oh boy, here it comes. Here comes the rejection. He then said that he would actually like to take my case. He said, with the notes from your doctor, which we will call Dr. H over at UCSF, you have a pretty strong case. 
He also said this is one of the most blatant cases of medical malpractice he has ever seen. He says sometimes as an attorney, when you're looking through medical records, you kind of really, really have to look for where the malpractice took place. In my case though, it was basically right there in black and white. I remember he told me that the pictures that Dr. H took of my eyes, the ones I thought he was a crazy man because he kept insisting I had to take these pictures, were such good documentation for my case. And with Dr. H's testimony, my case was even stronger. I asked him, okay, Mr. B, so what does that mean for me? Mr. B says to me, well, Nicole, I don't, really ever take cases I don't think I could win and I would really like to take your case. I sat there for a moment kind of waiting for, I don't know, candid camera to come out because this was all some big funny joke. We didn't have Ashton Kutcher and Punked back then. I think after sitting there I asked him, really are you sure or something along those lines? And he said, yes, Nicole, I'm positive. He said, let me read something to you. He began to read that pseudotumor cerebri or intercranial hypertension is the buildup of spinal fluid in your head. It can present symptoms like a tumor, but it's not a physical tumor. He went on to say that with a pseudotumor cerebri, you can experience headache, which can get worse over time without treatment, vision loss, and if you're not treated or the pseudotumor is not found in a timely manner, your symptoms can get dramatically worse over time. He went on to tell me that the pseudotumor cerebri can be referred to as the idiopathic tumor, which means they don't know the exact cause of it. What they do know is that it can affect women of menstruating age, especially women in their early 20s that are overweight. And for some reason, they don't know why, it especially affects early 20s women of a Polynesian heritage. I remember after hearing this, I was like, wait, not only were my symptoms ignored, the increased pressure readings of my three spinal taps were ignored. I am an overweight Polynesian female in her early 20s and it commonly affects us. By this time, tears are running down my face and I guess I pretty much don't know what to say. And Mr. B kind of says to me, yes, Nicole, not only are you a textbook case for a pseudotumor cerebri, they had absolutely everything they needed to diagnose you after your very first spinal tap. They ignored the pressure readings that they got off that spinal tap because of your weight. He goes on to say that after speaking to Dr. H, my doctor thought that not only could they have saved my vision after my first spinal tap, but he thinks even after my second spinal tap reading, they could have saved the majority of it. 
but by the third spinal tap and by the time I got to Dr. H at UCSF, it was too late. The damage from the pressure from the spinal fluid on my optic nerves was too great. I'm pretty sure by this time I was hysterically crying and maybe inconsolable. I don't know that I could hear anything else after that. I think maybe my brother or my mother was holding me. I'm not entirely sure. My grandparents piped up and said, okay, so how much is all this going to cost? Mr. B goes on to tell us that he wants to take my case on a contingency basis, which means he pays all of the upfront costs. And when the, or the case is settled, he gets to recoup expenses and then a percentage of the settlement. And then after that, the rest would go to me. I think then I said, well, what if we lose? He said, well, then you are responsible for my bill. He told me it was a risk, but he felt I had a very strong case. And he reminded me he does not take cases. He does not think he can win. I think at that point in time, I just pretty much said, okay, where do I sign? When we returned home to Washington, I think I was still in absolute shock. I don't think I really said anything to anybody for a while, and I know I couldn't stop the tears rolling down my face. I remember thinking to myself, so this wasn't my fault because I'm fat and couldn't lose weight? This happens to a lot of Polynesian early 20s overweight females. I just couldn't believe or couldn't digest that doctors who take a Hippocratic oath to do no harm did just the opposite. These doctors had absolutely everything they needed to diagnose me after my first spinal tap. They deducted though that my elevated pressure readings was due to my weight. So instead of doing something about it, they let me lay there for days in agonizing and excruciating pain while my vision slowly dissipated and faded away. I remember thinking to myself, okay, let me give these doctors, I don't know, the benefit of the doubt. I get double checking something, making something sure something's right or in order. So I get doing a second spinal tap just to make sure, but they got the same exact result, elevated levels of spinal fluid, yet they attributed it once again to my weight. I remember thinking to myself, was my weight the focus of their treatment of me or were they actually looking for something wrong with me? Were these doctors just so disgusted by my weight that they couldn't see anything else? Or were they even trying to help me? I kept going over and over and over this scenario in my head. Why, as a doctor who takes a Hippocratic oath to do no harm, would you yet let 
A 21-year-old young woman lay there in agonizing and excruciating pain while her vision slowly fades away. When you get something that could help her, but you don't because she's overweight. Is it really that simple? I just kept going over and over and over this in my head. I just couldn't grasp it. Was I not really worth saving? A lot of times you hear about these medical malpractice lawsuits that take years and years to resolve. Mine, to me, actually seemed to go really fast. I'm pretty sure Mr. B filed my lawsuit in the first few months of 1998. He named every single doctor that saw me from the onset of my symptoms all the way up until I was transferred to UCSF. He even named the hospital I was in, in my lawsuit. The price tag that my attorney put on this lawsuit was $5 million, but he told me that was just a number that he put there. He said we could end up with more, we could end up with less. In California, apparently, there is a statute of limitations on how much you can get for an actual medical malpractice lawsuit. And he told me it was around $250,000. Where the money comes in is proving further damages, like things I may need later on down the line. He also told me, although he listed every doctor that saw me from the onset of my symptoms as discovery went on, most of these doctors would be dropped as they went through all the evidence and whittle it down to the actual parties responsible. Once all this was explained to me, Mr. B started with his discovery. Discovery started with these things called interrogatories, which is a list of questions that were prepared by my attorney for the other party to answer. These questions had to be answered truthfully because they could be used as evidence in my trial. My entire family and anybody else that was there with me also received these interrogatories. I remember I received one and Mr. B actually came up from California to do mine with me one-on-one. -on -one. I remember thinking to myself, Wow, and I think it was about this time that I realized that he was actually genuinely a good human being and cared truly about what happened to his clients. After what seemed like years to me of interrogatories and depositions with doctors, Mr. B had my case pretty much narrowed down to a handful of People. My primary care physician was named because she was basically, like he explained to me, in charge of everything that was happening to me. He also named my neurologist that was on my team because he should not have ignored my textbook symptoms or the pressure readings on my spinal taps. My ophthalmologist was listed in this suit, which to be honest with you, 
when they told me his name, I basically asked who was that because I didn't remember any ophthalmologist. Nevertheless, I had one and he was named because when I first entered the hospital and he examined me, he would have seen the swelling of my optic discs, which were called papilledema. They also named, of course, Mr. Emergency Room, Mr. Rude, or Dr. Rude as I like to call him, because I presented to him with such severe symptoms and he really didn't do anything for me. He basically just dismissed me, told me that because I was fat that the painkillers weren't helping me and I just needed something stronger. Mr. B also named the first hospital or medical facility I was in because they kind of just sat back and let me lay there and didn't come in and check on the case. I should mention that it was suspected that possibly the medical facility didn't do anything because at this time I had 100% hospital coverage. So they just let me lay there, let the doctors order multiple tests after test after test, and they even ran duplicate tests. My attorney thought that maybe they did all of this and just let me lay there because I had such good medical insurance. I think after going over all the bills, my actual medical bills totaled about $300,000 and a majority of that was spent at the first hospital I was in. I think the only bills my family actually received was for all the medical transport that they did transporting me to MRI after MRI and CAT scan after CAT scan. I remember feeling really bad that my primary care physician was actually listed in this suit. She had been my doctor for quite some years and my aunt actually worked for her. I remember expressing this to Mr. B and telling him I, I didn't really feel like she was at fault. Over time though, that was, um, that was seen, that she wasn't really at fault. She wasn't really steering the boat. She was listening to her colleagues that knew more about this than she did. Um, she ended up actually testifying in my trial and on her way out, she gave me a big hug and whispered good luck in my ear as she left. I remember why the back and forth was going on with Mr. B and all the doctor's attorneys with depositions and interrogatories. I had to make a couple of trips down to California to be interviewed by rehabilitation specialists. They wanted to know what my lost wages would be. They wanted to know what kind of things I thought I needed in the future or what I might need farther down the line to, I guess, basically have the normalest life I could possibly have after losing my sight. I remember the defense's rehabilitation specialist was actually a blind gentleman. I was so flipping offended by this. It really ticked me off. I kind of thought that the defense was, I don't know, trying to rub something in my face like life goes on after you lose your sight or something.
I remember, even though this man was just doing his job, in a very hostile manner, I told him, there's really no dollar sign that you can put on what happened to me. I went on to tell him that I worked for Olin Mills Portrait Studio and while I was trained in all the positions there, my passion was actually photography and I was pretty sure that you needed your eyesight to be a fucking photographer. I told him that I had actually, before I got sick and lost my sight, planned to move back in with my parents so I could actually attend college for photography. This gentleman was very nice and I don't blame him. He was just doing his job. And I remember him saying to me that there is a lot of things that blind people can do. I remember telling him it doesn't really matter. There's no price tag you can put on my site. Nothing is ever going to bring it back. Yes, the money would definitely help me in the future. But I think if I had to choose, I would rather have my vision. After this meeting, I really don't know how many more specialists I had to meet with, but it was so exhausting. Always having to look so far into the future and try and predict what I would need to live a productive life. I was just so frustrated and I was just like, shit. Like I know what I need to live a productive life. I have no clue. I'm completely new to this blind thing. <sighs> Shoot, it's not like when I lost my sight, it, it came with a flipping handbook, like this is what you need to do. Or I inherited some sort of amazing musical talent, like all those wonderful musicians out there, like Stevie Wonder and Ray Charles. That, that just didn't happen to me. And I was getting so frustrated and so exhausting with all these interviews asking me to look 20 years into the future as to what I might need. Like, I had a crystal ball to tell me what I would need 20 years from now. I know I was really rude and sarcastic in a lot of these interviews, but I just really didn't know what to say to these people. Anyway, I think towards the end of 1998, around the beginning of that December, it was my turn to have my deposition with all the doctor's attorneys. I was an absolute nervous wreck and riddled with so much anxiety about this. Since it was the beginning of December, I decided to go ahead and spend the holidays and the New Year's in California. Um, my mom was a Jehovah's Witness, so she didn't celebrate any of that, and I wanted to be with my friends and my family that did celebrate. And plus, you know, it was 1998, so we would be bringing in 1999, me and Roxy, and celebrating just like on the Prince song. These depositions weren't just for me, they were deposing pretty much my entire family. And my family really didn't lend any insight to me about these depositions. They just said, they ask you a lot of questions. So the night before, I was a wreck. I was tossing and turning. I couldn't sleep. I didn't know what to expect. 
I had a hunch that they were probably going to ask a lot of personal questions and bring my um, party kind of lifestyle into it. I didn't really want to lay my shit bare on the table for what I thought was a bunch of snooty, stuck-up lawyers, but I really didn't have a choice in the matter. I had to do the deposition. My deposition was held, of course, in Walnut Creek at Mr. B's office, but we had to use a conference room next to his office because, believe it or not, his would not hold everybody. I think there was maybe about 15 other attorneys. There could have been a few more, there could have been a few less, but I'm guesstimating that's how many were there. My deposition uh, probably lasted for about several days and it was so many years ago and it's all just a blur to me. It felt like the questions just ran into each other, that they were all repetitive and the same. I do remember a few things though. I remember the ophthalmologist's attorney asked me if I knew my ophthalmologist by name. Uh, yeah, no, I didn't know him by name. He asked me, Miss Kiliona, do you remember what he did for you? Uh, not much. I think I saw him when I first got to the hospital and he looked in my eyes. Other than that, I couldn't tell you anything past that. Then of course we had Dr. Rude's attorney saying, Miss Kiliona, did Dr. Rude really put his hand in your grandmother's face? Well, I have no idea. I was in so much pain and my vision was blurry, but it's my grandmother. And if she says that's what happened, that's what happened because, well, she doesn't lie and I'm not going to question her. Then, of course, Dr. Rude's attorney asked me, so if you were in so much pain and your vision was blurry, how exactly did you convey what was going on with you to Dr. Rude? Uh, well, I pointed to my head and I said, it hurts. I pointed to my eyes and said, they're blurry. I pointed to my face, which looks like I had a stroke and said, uh, look at my face. And then I pointed to my neck and said, it hurts. The attorney then went on to ask me, did he give you some sort of examination? Uh, yes, I think so. Did you walk out of the emergency room, Miss Kiliana? Uh, nope. I was wheeled out because I could hardly walk and was in so much pain and well, Dr. Rude just gave me some more drugs. The deposition kept going on for there and it seemed like to me a lot of their questions were similar but with like a slight change to them. And I think that they were trying to see from attorney to attorney and question to question if my story would vary or if it would change. I remember saying, uh, gentlemen, I don't think you understand how much pain I was in. I remember that. I remember when the attorney for my neurologist came up, the questions got pretty intense about my symptoms and when they developed. I think they were trying to determine what symptoms I had before I was admitted into the hospital, into this neurologist's care. The deposition just kept droning on and on and on. 
I felt like they were just asking me the same stupid flipping questions over and over again. I wish I could have just told them in the simplest of ways what the hell had happened, but that's just not how depositions are conducted. By the end, I was so exhausted when it was over, I practically jumped for joy. And if I could have, I would have screamed, somebody please bring me a goddamn drink. Well, instead of yelling, get me a drink, I of course did the next best thing. I called my girl Roxy and I said, hey, can you pick me up and drop me at a bar and just leave me there? She said, oh, Nicole, that good, huh? I said, yeah, that good, let's just do this. And she kind of chuckled and said, all right, I'll be there in a few, which is a story, unfortunately, listeners, I have to save for another time. After that grueling deposition, I, of course, stayed through the holidays. I had an absolute blast with my friends. And of course, Roxy and I rung in 1999 like only her and I could. And then it was back up to Washington. I think it was a few months later when Mr. B contacted me and told me that two of the doctors and the hospital that I was into wanted to talk settlement. I said, okay, Mr. B, what does that exactly mean? And he told me that they go to what is called a settlement conference and sit down and they make an offer. And then he gets back to me with the offer. I said, all right. I trust you. So when he called back, he said that these two doctors and medical establishment or hospital I was in offered $250,000 for the medical malpractice and $250,000 for future damages and needs. When I first heard this, it didn't really sound like a lot to me. Mr. B said, take some time, think about it, talk with your parents about it, and get back to me. When I first told my mom, uh, she pretty much flipped her lid. (laughs) She said, there's no way we're settling for that. That's not nearly enough for you. My mom, of course, immediately called my attorney, started spouting off all these numbers and saying, this isn't nearly enough. There's just no way we're going to settle for this. My attorney, as only he could, calmly tried to explain the statute of limitations to my mom and how this was actually a good offer, and if we go to court, we may actually get less. I really don't think my mother understood the legality of it all. I think she was probably acting like a mama bear, and people had hurt her daughter, and she just didn't think like it was enough. My attorney said, well, this decision is ultimately Nicole's because she is my client and you are not. I got on the phone with him and we walked through the statute of limitations and how it works and he explained absolutely everything to me. And from what I understood with the statute of limitations in Washington, $250,000 was actually the limit you could receive for medical malpractice future damages and everything is just a bonus and that's what you have to prove in court to get the extra money he said so the fact that they offered you the limit for the medical malpractice and then an additional for your lost wages damages or whatever you want to call it it's actually a really good deal i fully 100 percent trusted him and took the deal 
I think by the end of my settlement with these first two doctors and medical establishment, I got $250,000 in cash, $250,000 put into an annuity for me, which would dole me out a monthly payment with a yearly percentage increase for the next 20 years or the rest of my life, whichever one came first. So if I died before the 20 years was up, it would pay out until the 20 years was over. If I didn't die, it would pay out until I passed away. Uh, it's been past 20 years and it's still paying me out. But what the monthly amount was, was worth way more than what I made a month at work. So it was pretty worth it. After Brian took out all his expenditures and his percentage, I think I ended up with about 65,000 in cash. Unfortunately, we weren't done yet because of course, Dr. Rude did not want to settle or even discuss it. We had to go to court with him. I think my trial was held towards the mid or latter part of 1999. It was held in California in a place called Martinez that I actually used to live and was very familiar with. I didn't have to be at court for the jury selection, but Mr. B did come over to my grandparents' house where I was staying and explain to us kind of how the jury selection would work and um, what his goal was in selecting a jury. And my grandfather, the jokester that he is piped up and said, Hey, Mr. B, you should put a whole bunch of pork chops on that jury because Nicole will win everything. And my attorney said, what? Um, so I had to explain to my attorney that normally, you know, I would date black men and pork chop for some reason, I don't know how it happened or came about was a term that Roxy and I had coined for a very good looking black man. So after my whole family got a nice little chuckle out of that and my face was red, Brian says, well, all right then, I'll do my best. <laughs> and off he went. Mr. B had seemed pretty pleased with the jury that was selected. He thought there might be a few tricky ones on there, but other than that, he was pretty happy. My trial, I think, started maybe a few days or a week after that. Um, my trial was so long ago, it was over 20 years ago, and I don't remember all of it. There are a few things that stick out in my mind, and I'm not entirely sure why, but they do. I remember the first couple days of my trial, there was a little school tour that sat in for a few, uh, like maybe 45 minutes or so. And I guess as the kids were leaving the courtroom, they were waving to me and my grandpa says, oh, nobody told them she was blind. And this one little kid turned around and said, well, then she can't see us now, can she? During my trial, I also had this intense feeling like somebody was trying to, I don't know, burn holes in my back or my head or something just like glaring at me from the jury box. My grandmother said that there was an actual woman on my jury that clearly didn't like me, clearly had disdain for me. When I was led up to the jury box by my attorney, she looked at me and basically shook her head in disbelief like she didn't even believe I was blind. 
I remember sitting there and listening to my mother and my aunt and my grandmother testify about their experience with me as I was getting sick and how I looked, things they saw, what I was feeling, what was happening with my face. And there were things I guess I hadn't really known up until my trial and actually heard them for myself. And I remember just sitting there during their testimonies and tears just rolling down my face because flashbacks just kept coming back to me about how much pain I was in. After my family, Dr. H took the stand and he of course came equipped with all his medical documentation, the photos that he took of my eyes through various periods while I was in the hospital that showed my swollen optic discs from the increased spinal fluid. He said a lot of medical terms and stuff I just didn't fully understand. I knew he was talking about me and about my case, but there was a lot of medical jargon in there I just didn't really understand he was trying to explain. He held up extremely well during cross-examination. I think it was very hard for the defense to try and discredit him because he had documented so um, precisely from the day I got into his care throughout my whole stay there that, and he had all the medical evidence and pictures he needed to document each statement that he said the defense was really having a hard time discrediting what he was saying. I should mention at this time that Dr. H was a very well-respected and accredited neuro-ophthalmologist. Everybody in his field uh, respected him and many of the doctors that I saw when they found out I was under his care said to me on more than one occasion, different doctors, that Dr. H was basically brilliant and a genius. And if he says jump, you pretty much say how high because he knows what he's talking about. I took the stand after that. And when uh, Dr. Rude's attorney came up, a lot of the uh, questions were pretty much the same that were asked in my deposition. Uh, they seem to be a little bit more intense and forcefully asked at this point in time, but there was one line of questioning that wasn't asked while I was in my deposition. And I, uh, I found it kind of odd, but Dr. Rood's attorney asked me if um, he had performed an examination on my neck by uh, doing palpitations looking for spinal meningitis. I remember saying, um, yeah, no, he didn't do that. Are you sure he didn't do that, Ms. Kiliona? Yeah, I'm sure he didn't do that. I was in so much pain. If he had done that, I would have remembered it. After my cross-examination by uh, Dr. Root's lawyer, we took a lunch break. I remember sitting there with my attorney and him saying, well, I've been sitting here the whole time watching uh, Dr. Root and his attorney over there on the steps frantically, frantically going through your file. He turns to me and said, I guess they didn't like your answers. Then it was time for the defense to put on their case. Dr. Root took the stand and we quickly found out why they were asking the spinal meningitis questions. It turned out that that was their whole defense. 
that Dr. Rood had checked me through neck palpitations for spinal meningitis and didn't find any evidence of it. So that's why it led him to the diagnosis of what he had given me and sent me home. The funny thing about this line of questioning and spinal meningitis is the only real way to find out if somebody has it is to do a spinal tap and test the fluid in it. Um, had Dr. Rood actually followed his hunch and admitted me and done an emergency spinal tap at that time and found out I didn't have spinal meningitis, but yet had a lot of uh, fluid pressure, my whole outcome may have been completely different. I guess Dr. Rood figured I wasn't really worth his time or admitting or trying to perform to actually confirm whether or not I had spinal meningitis. Um, I remember on cross-examination when Mr. B was uh, exam er, asking Dr. Rood questions, the room became very, very tense. And I remember Dr. Rood was very, very defensive on every single question Mr. B asked. After Dr. Rood stepped down, the defense pretty much rested. I guess he was their um, only witness and they were relying on their uh, testimony. Anyway, after this, it was time for basically closing arguments where each attorney summarizes their case to the jury. I don't remember the exact words that Mr. B used in his closing statement. It sounded a little something like, um, Nicole Kiliona was a 21-year-old young female woman. Basically at the start of her life, she had found her passion in photography and was planning on moving home with her parents so she could attend college for it. After returning from a fun family vacation where she had started to experience headache and pain, it just started to get worse. And doctor after doctor after doctor kept sending her home. When the pain got so bad and so severe, she went into the emergency room to hopefully get some help and relief. After two agonizing hours on the emergency room floor and many other emergency room patients volunteering their spot for Nicole to go first, she gets into Dr. Rood. Let's go over how Miss Kiliona looked at this time. She's a 21-year-old female. Is she obese? Yes, but she can hardly walk. Her face looks like she's had a stroke. Her neck is killing her and her eyes are blurry. When she gets into Dr. Rude, she can barely tell him what's wrong with her. That's how much pain she's in. She's basically pointing to her face, eyes, and neck and telling him blurry, pain, looks like I had a stroke and that's all she can relate to him. Dr. Rood says he performs an examination by doing neck palpitations on Nicole's neck, which she cannot remember, and had he done this, she would have noticed because it would have been so painful. After doing this 
examination, he surmises that basically she needs more drugs because she's so obese that the drugs aren't touching her pain. And he sends her home. Now, had Dr. Rood actually followed his first instinct and asked for a spinal tap to be performed to see if she really had meningitis, things may have turned out different for Miss Kiliona. Would we even be sitting here or would she even be blind? Mr. B then went on to explain what kind of individual I was, what he had learned about me through all his interviews with my friends, my family, and my employers. I remember when he was talking about me, I was looking around thinking he was talking about something else because he was saying so many wonderful things like, I was an amazing daughter, an amazing granddaughter, an awesome sister. Every employer that he talked to that I worked for said anybody would be um, lucky to have her. She's a hard worker. She always gets the job done. Everybody said I was a strong, outgoing leader person that, you know, never let a challenge get in her way. If she set her mind to it, she got it done. I know Mr. B said so much more and I, I can't remember it all. I just remember that tears were running down my face and thinking to myself, that person he's talking about was treated so badly by the medical community because she was obese. There's just no way. Is he really talking about me? But I had to realize, yep, Nicole, he's talking about you. I think with all these fabulous words that Mr. B was saying about me, what he was really trying to impress upon the jury was what kind of person I was and did I really deserve this type of dismissive medical treatment just because I was obese? And truly, I think that's what my case ultimately boiled down to. Once everybody rested, the jury was dismissed with their list of instructions to go deliberate. I would sit home to wait and Mr. B would contact me frequently and say, the jury's asking all the right questions, they're examining all the right evidence, and it leads me to believe that they're leaning in your favor. One early afternoon while we were sitting down for lunch, my attorney calls and says, okay, the jury's back and they're going to render their verdict today after three o'clock. So we quickly finished up our lunch and off to the courthouse we went. When uh, we went to the courthouse, I was pretty apprehensive and I didn't really know what to expect from the jury. The jury was given a list of instructions with several different things to rule on and it seemed like each one had to have a dollar amount attached to it. I'm not entirely sure of all the categories the jury was given, but it was something like, is Dr. Rude responsible for Ms. Kiliona's vision loss? Was Dr. Rude's medically negligent in Ms. Kiliona's case? Is he responsible for damages and future damages to Miss Kiliona. The verdict was handed forward to the judge. Then the forewoman stood up and Mr. B leaned over to me at this time and says, oh, that's the woman that's been staring holes at you this whole time during this jury. I thought to myself, oh shit, great. I'm flipping doomed. Then those beautiful words came out and I heard, Dr. Rude is guilty. 
Then each category for damages was gone over and dollar amounts were rendered. I really wasn't paying attention. I was kind of still stuck there in my own little word world on that word guilty. I think at this time I finally felt vindicated. I finally felt like, right, this was avoidable. This didn't have to happen to me. I didn't deserve to be treated this way because I was overweight and I had deserved medical treatment like everybody else gets. After all these dollar amounts were listed, I remember my attorney leaned over and said, okay, that's about $2.4 million. And I about shit my pants. He said, with the statute of limitations, of course, we're limited and I have to go into settlement negotiations with the defense. But I think you'll probably end up with about $725,000. After that, I basically left the negotiations up to Mr. B because I fully trusted him and knew he had my best interest at heart. I returned home to Washington and I think my attorney called me a few weeks later and said, well, Dr. Root is having a flipping cow over about $25,000. I pretty much sighed and said, I, I just don't wanna drag this out. I just don't want it to continue, I wanna be done. He says, well, Nicole, it's really your decision. It's up to you. I'll go back to the table and fight for that $25,000. And I basically just kind of said, you know what? No, I don't care. I want to be done. We'll just settle for the $700,000 and I'll be done with this man. By the end, I think from this um, settlement, I walked away with $700,000 um, a certain amount or percentage of my settlement was placed into yet another annuity for me that would dole me out another monthly amount with a percentage increase each year. Uh, Mr. B took his well-deserved percentage from this settlement, and I think by the end of all of that, I ended up with about $200,000 in cash. I think with both settlements combined, my uh, whole settlement was about $1.2 million. I still get my two monthly annuities that go up a certain percentage each year, and I'm able to live pretty comfortably on that, and I have a choice to work or to not work. Um, with the cash, I pretty much paid off whatever medical bills I had left. Um, I bought a house, a car for my fiance, soon to be husband to transport us around in. I got married and did, you know, a couple other things like help my brother go to Africa his senior year of college. And I have money to help with any needs that I may need in the future. My attorney, is such a sweet man. Um, he still checks on me. I think for the first uh, 10 years after my settlement, he checked on me every year to see how I was doing, what my progress was. Um, when I got married, he was of course invited, but unfortunately due to a case couldn't attend. And then I think after the first 10 years, because it's been 20 plus years now, he calls every couple years and asks how I'm doing and how my family's doing. I know he has fallen on some hard times medically 
and the last time I saw him uh, was probably, oh, I don't know, in 2006 or so, but he is still a dear close family friend. Um, at the end of this whole medical malpractice journey, I realized that I didn't have to accept this dismissive medical treatment just because I was overweight. I deserved every um, courtesy that anybody else would be extended as far as medical treatment. And I didn't have to stand for it anymore. So listeners, thank you for tuning in. And if you like what you heard, please hit that subscribe or like button. And I leave you with much aloha for now until we meet again.